0: Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon, I am Vena Jones-Cox and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing your nation's public radio source for information, advice, news, techniques, strategies for starting or building your own real estate investing business. And today is question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. Uh, That is almost always the last Wednesday of the month, and it is a program where there's no... You know, pre thought out stuff to say. I sit here and wait for your questions to come in to the station. You can call them in at 877 772 9658. You can also go to our website, com. Go to the Ask a Question tab and fill that in and hit the Send button. It'll come here via email any question that you have is cool today. As long as it's about real estate investing, it'd be about any part of real estate investing, getting started, getting out, getting financing, getting deals, whatever you would like to talk about. Again, the phone number is 877-772-9658 or the, uh, Way to send it via the web is to go to realliferealestate.com and fill out the Q&A button. While you're at realliferealestate.com, you'll notice there's a thingy up in the top corner that says, would you like to join our email list? And your answer to that should be, yes, absolutely, I want to join your email list because when you do, you get a weekly email telling you about the upcoming program so that you can just remember to attend i mean how many times have you signed up for a a webinar or something online and then completely forgotten to go to it because nobody reminded you our weekly e-letter reminds you and also gives you articles by and about our guests and other information about what's going on out in the real estate world so uh, when we have our question and answer week next month, maybe you could have pre-sent in your questions, as do some of our listeners. That's realliferealestate.com. dot com. Join our email list. Um, again, the uh, way to get to way to get your question in today is at 877-772-9658 or via real estate dot com. Uh, I have a question here from Andrew. Who, based on his phone number, I'm going to say is from Pennsylvania. Who says? Here's a question for the monthly Q and A, or whenever you would be so kind as to address it. (laughs) Um, I've listened to your podcast on asset protection, and I don't really, still don't really know what to do. I can ask a lawyer, but that's kind of like asking a barber if I need a haircut. I can ask local real estate professionals, but they're not going to know if they've done it right until they've been sued. I once heard you say something like, always have an LLC unless you're in Pennsylvania and then get an LLP. Well, no, that wasn't me that said that. That might have been one of the attorneys that was on the show. Uh, well, I'm in Pennsylvania, so could you please expand upon that? I have three properties now in addition to my own residence. I so would like to add more possibly with an out-of-state family member as a partner with him providing the financing and me doing all of the groundwork. I'd love to have an entity set up before I start looking for property, any help is greatly appreciated. Well, Andrew, um, as the disclaimer at the front of the show says, "I'm not an attorney, and I don't really give legal accounting or other professional advice uh, given that I don't you know fully understand your situation. I understand what you're what you're telling me here, but uh, this is something that you're going to need to go to a legal accounting or other professional." For more information, um, if you are bringing in a another person into your business, that is an even better reason to have an entity set up than the fact that you are in a business that can be fairly, you know, high liability. That I mean, if you if you have rental properties, at some point somebody is going to sue you for something. And you hope it's something that your insurance covers, but your insurance just doesn't cover everything. I had a my first dog bite, and that's you know after after twenty five years of owning rental properties to only have had the first one i you know I got lucky, and the dog that that um in theory did the biting was one of the seven types of dogs. That it's very hard to get insurance against. So, in other words, like your insurance company says, if your tenants have a pit bull, a Chow, a German Shepherd, you know, there's seven of them, a Rottweiler, and that dog bites somebody, we're not going to pay out. I mean, it's part of it's just part of the policy. And this particular dog was a pit bull. So, uh, did I know the tenant had the dog? No, I did not know the tenant had the dog. Did the dog actually bite the person? That is an interesting question because the tenant says, no, the dog was locked in the house and he doesn't even know who this person is. Did I get sued anyway, despite the fact that it wasn't my dog and the tenant was had not notified me there was a dog? Yes, I did. You know why? Because the plaintiff, who may very well have just been seeking a settlement, and their attorney knew who was more likely to have money in that scenario, me or the tenant, So the purpose of having the entity is to separate your rental stuff, you know, the stuff that that is liability, potentially liability-laden, from your personal stuff and make it so that if that dog had actually bitten or, in fact, actually eaten this person, that what was up for grabs in the case of a settlement was what was in that LLC, not what was in the LLC plus my... Personal home, my checking account, my car, my own tiny adorable little dog. So that's why people get entities, all right. And and they shouldn't be horribly expensive to set up or to maintain. They do need to be maintained. The question about Pennsylvania: should it be an LLC or or a a, a, an LLP, which would be a limited liability partnership? You need to talk to a Pennsylvania attorney about that. But then you're also now bringing another person in to this deal to co-own it with you. And what you're worried about in that situation is liability coming from the outside in instead of the inside out. So in other words, um, let's say your relative, whoever this is, gets himself into some sort of legal or tax trouble of some sort. And your properties are owned by you and by him. So the deed says your name and his name. Well, guess what? Your what his half of your stuff can be attached for those sorts of things. So, so, and, and and vice versa. I mean, you could do something that would affect him as well. So, even better idea uh, to to make sure, 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 sure you have some entities here in place. And also, you imply that this is someone that you're somewhat close to and would like to remain friends with. Um, having an entity and a really good, uh, in the case of an LLC, it would be it would be a uh, an operating agreement, I assume it's called the same thing in an LLP, that really, really defines what happens if, you know, what, what happens if one or the other of you gets unhappy with the partnership? What happens if one or the other of you gets divorced? Does the does the C- can the ex step in as a partner? Um, what if one of you wants to sell your shares? What if one of you feels like the other one's not doing their job? All that stuff can be written out in great detail by the attorneys and nobody's offended. And then if something goes wrong up the road, it's not just a handshake agreement. So lots of good reasons, particularly in your case, Andrew, to go ahead and do this. And the only question I think that remains is, is it an LLC or an LLP Go to your local real estate investors association, find the attorney that does all of those things for everybody, and ask them. I I, I vaguely remember someone referencing, you know, after after going on 20 years of doing this program, <laughs> I don't remember everything that everybody said, but I vaguely remember somebody referencing that LLPs were better in Pennsylvania, and I think it had something to do with the cost. I think it had to do with the cost of maintaining them. So, Yeah. Thank you very much for your email, Andrew. If you have a question that you'd like to get answered here on Real Life Real Estate today, send it in to realliferealestate.com. In other words, go to realliferealestate.com. Find the question and answer tab. Click that. Put your question in. Or you can give us a call here in the studio at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Bina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means any question that you have, no matter how, you know, silly you think it is, today is a great day to ask it. i got no guests, just time to tell you what you want to know about real estate investing at 877-772-9658 or at... RealLifeRealEstate.com. You can just go there and send the question in that way. Uh, I have a question here from Phil in Cleveland. He says, is it a problem to buy a property for rent in the winter time?" I have a couple of potentially good deals on the table, but they're all rental properties. And I'm wondering if it's harder to rent properties in January than it is in, say, June. Um, yeah. January's not as good as June, Phil, for a a, a variety of reasons. You know, one of, one of which is that you know folks with kids who are responsible tenants who want to keep their kids in the same schools uh, often choose the June July timeframe to move. So you just get you get a little bump there, uh, folks tend to prefer to move when it's a little bit warmer and they're not having to drag their couch out in in the ice and snow in Cleveland. And uh, so you get, more, you get more applicants at this time of year that you reject because the reason they're moving is because they have to. And by have to, I mean the sheriff is coming to set them out of their current property in the next week or two because they didn't pay their rent and that is not really the person that you want. On the other hand, it's not, I mean, if I saw a good deal, I wouldn't not buy it because it was January. I mean, you might build in an extra month or two of vacancy expenses into the price and just go ahead and, and buy it anyway. Uh, it's not that bad. Um, you know, I've had I've had properties that have rented you know, Christmas week. It's uh, traditionally the worst time to try and rent is between, like, Thanksgiving and first of the year. And then, of course, in our part of the country, weather affects the next few months. So it's not, it's not ideal, but I wouldn't, I definitely, you're saying you've, you got some potentially good deals. I could do them. I mean, what's a couple of vacancy? what's a couple of months of vacancy going to cost you a thousand dollars, two thousand. And are they ready for service? I mean, are you, are you telling me that you could buy it today and put a tenant in it tomorrow if that tenant was available? Cause usually properties need some kind of turnover. So are you really losing two months or are you losing a month while you fix it and then a month while you wait it to be for it to be rented so thank you for your email phil Uh question and answer week on real life real estate investing and uh, you can do what these folks are doing which is send them send the email send the uh, questions via email by going to realliferealestate.com or you can call in at 877-772-9658 Uh, Questionnaire from Wesley from Georgia. Wesley says, I have a question about single and small multifamily slash duplexes, triplexes, anything under $500,000 in purchase price and using private money to acquire these problems, uh, properties. (laughs) That was a Freudian slip. Oh, my gosh. I am looking to get into... JVing and private money deals, but some of these specifics will help me in defining a purpose of my need to raise private capital or becoming a sooner but yet later event. Hmm. My scenario is I will be looking I will be the investor finding and putting the deals together with a money investor that will invest in the properties. How do I use the money as cash flow and still provide a living for myself as in food, water, and shelter in doing these deals? Okay, Wesley, let me stop you right there. If if what you're thinking is that you are going to borrow from these people both money to acquire and put into service houses and also borrow money from them for your living expenses, that is a really bad and... Depending on how you do it, potentially illegal thing to do. All money raising has strings attached. Okay, and 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 how how binding the strings are depends in part on what state you're in. Georgia's actually f- easier than some states in terms of what you have to do to legally raise money and also whether the money is coming from the same state because if you're if you're raising money from people in California to put into houses in Georgia that's a different scenario than if you're raising money in Georgia to put into properties in Georgia and there's several scenarios under which this can happen that uh have different out, potential outcomes. Uh, it sounds like what you're saying is you want to identify a property and say, this house is worth $150,000 fixed up. We can get it for $60,000. We can fix it for $40,000. So I need from you, Mr. Partner, $100,000. And then you and I will in some way split the income and equity from that property. It sounds to me like that's what you're saying. If that's what you're telling the partner the money's for, that's what the money needs to be for. It it needs to go into the property. It needs to not go into your living expenses. The way you're going to put food on the table and pay your rent is from the profit from the deals. Now, if you did a different kind of fundraising, which is you're you're going to do some sort of a private placement, where bunches of different investors are going to put money into a company and that company is then going to go identify and buy property. So in other words, the investors own shares of the company, they don't own the properties. Now you're probably into SEC territory. You probably need to file with the Securities and Exchange Commission, a, a business plan, a you know, this is what we're going to invest the money in. This is the the kind of regulation I want to fall under, you know, I want to be a rig D filing or whatever. And in that business plan, you you could in theory say part of the money raised is going to be for my salary. <laughs> I wouldn't in I wouldn't invest in that private placement though if I were one of the investors. I mean, you know, to me my money needs to be going into assets, and you need to be making money from those assets. And if you can't do that, if you can't make the make the assets make money quickly enough to feed yourself, I'm gonna kind of question: Are you for real? I mean, is, if you do, do you do you really understand this business well enough to to be the person I'm putting money with? And you mentioned a little later on in the question uh, that you could be dealing with IRA money and. That you need you know potentially part of that money to help you in paying the bills um, again yes i r a money is is regulated even in you know more strict ways than regular money, but what what your what you're proposing here is not is not something that's going to attract people. Okay. I I don't, I don't know how else to say it. Um, It's also, it's also sort of a dangerous practice because effectively what you're doing is you are, you are borrowing money to live on. And you know what happens when people do that repeatedly. Okay. So go find deals that are such good deals that they can, your half of them can pay your salary and that you're, Investors can also get what they want, which is a return and for you to have to work for your salary, not for what they're loaning you to pay it. Interesting question, though. Um, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing Question and Answer Week here on Real Life Real Estate. You can send us a uh, an email by going to com to the question and answer uh, part of the page. You can also call in your questions at 877-772-9658. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vena Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means if you want to know anything about anything having to do with real estate, of course, you can call in your questions at 877-772-9658, or you can send an email. Just go to com, and that will that'll uh, send it right on over here. Uh, we're going to go to line one and talk to Bobby, who is in Kentucky. Bobby, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Yeah, hello. My question is about, um, like, yellow letter campaigns, mm-hmm. and when you start those campaigns, whether it's foreclosure or um probate um is there a is there a good time frame for probate you know should you be looking for things that are relatively new or something that's seasoned maybe 6 or 8 months you're talking that was my question so probate yeah probate okay. all right now bobby i'm i'm going to do something that drives people crazy but i'm going to do it to you anyway okay. i'm going to tell you the question you should be asking instead of the question that you are asking the question you should be asking is: Are yellow letters appropriate for probate? And I know they're they're very often advertised. and And, and wait a minute, let's let's take another step back and tell everybody what the yellow letters are. Because I mean, you know, and I know, but there might be folks who're like, "What in the world is a yellow letter?" Um, yellow letters are are either handwritten or they appear to be handwritten letters that that indicate. You know that you're interested in buying somebody's house without indicating like how you found out about it. So they might say something like, "Dear Fred, I noticed you have a house at one two three Easy Street. I'm interested in buying it. I can pay cash. Give me a call if you're interested in selling." And then it's signed Bobby, right? And it and it's on a it's on a, it's called a yellow letter because it looks like it's on a yellow lined paper. And ten years ago, when those things first came out, they were. They were the bomb, man. They got these incredibly high response rates. and um, Because they looked handwritten, they looked like, gosh, Bobby actually wants to buy my house. Uh, they're kind of overused now. And a, a lot of folks who are in those categories of people that, um, that get yellow letters, like you mentioned pre-foreclosures, you know, they, that's, that's a good one, driving for dollars, folks like that, they're seeing more than one. They're saying, you know, like, I'm getting yellow letter after yellow letter after yellow letter. And I think it it, it loses its power a little bit when your sellers start thinking, okay, these people are not all handwriting letters to me. They're They're still okay, and they are sure better than nothing. I mean, I would rather see you do yellow letters every day of the week than do nothing. However, in the case of probates, which are produced because somebody died, and it's usually somebody close to the executor, right? I mean, you don't you don't leave your house to somebody you don't know or you don't like. So It's usually somebody who's close to the executor. And they get this apparently handwritten letter that doesn't... I mean, they know why you wrote them. Because trust me, I've tried that game of pretending that I didn't know it was an estate. And I got nothing but angry phone calls for like three weeks in a row... They know why you wrote them, but you're not you're not like addressing that in the yellow letter. So something for for the purpose of probate, something um a little more formal, you know, looks like it's typed out, um, uh, saying you know my condolences. I'm I'm sorry for your loss. Something something to address the fact that somebody they love died recently is going to get you a better qualified response rate and yelled at less often. Now I'll answer the question that you actually did ask, which is what is the timing on the letter that you do decide to use, whether that's a yellow letter or something else. And the answer is your instinct that you should probably wait a little while on the probates is correct. Probate is a long process. I mean, it can be easily 6 months i've seen him i've seen him take a lot longer than that um it's just it takes a while to to get through the court process so the for, and again they were generated by the fact that somebody died so giving a little time to sort of let the immediate pain pass and also to get a little further into the legal process so that they can actually sell the property because a lot of people they will get your letter and they're not they're not to the point of the process where they can sell the property is a good idea Uh, that is generally going to be six weeks to three months following the initial filing of the will so uh yeah you want to want that that is the one kind of mailing that you want to wait a little while on uh, other ones for foreclosures things like that that are are more time sensitive you 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 really want to mail them right away but um probates yes, you're right you want to wait a little bit um I think we lost Bobby and I think he's calling back but he's i guess he'll he can listen to the answer and the podcast <laughs> later on because uh, I just I heard that he'd gotten off the line, but I just kept talking. And by the way, folks, you can always listen to Real Life Real Estate um, endlessly on our podcast, which you can subscribe to through iTunes, or you can uh, get the individual episodes at com. There's several hundred episodes up on the podcast at this point. I go to different places in the country and people say, I listened to you, I binge listened to you last week because I knew you were coming and I listened to all 200, I know everything you're going to say. I know I'm, I'm like Netflix and this is the Netflix of real estate investing information. Uh, so yeah, that, uh, real life real estate.com or of course, iTunes to check out the podcast. This is Question and Answer Week here on Real Life Real Estate. And you can call in, as did Bobby from Kentucky at 877 772 9658 Or you can get this for um uh you can get this via email by going to uh reallife real and I'm I'm sorting through some questions right now, which is why I sound distracted. You know, we should we should do like the other NPR shows do where they take questions the week before and they make it sound like it's live, you know, because I, I, I tried to call into one of the shows one time and they were like, we don't take questions live on the air. You have to leave it on this voicemail here. And then they then they sort of like have a discussion, but it's not really a discussion. We should do that because it sounds all professional and clean when people are listening to it. Um, question here from... Um, that's not actually a question that has to do with the better. Oh, okay. No, it is a question. The question is, this is from Daniel, who is doesn't say where he is from. He says, um, I'm getting constant contacts from the Better Business Bureau in my area. Is there any advantage to joining the BBB as a real estate investor? Uh, you know what daniel i'm going to i'm going to say something that might be a little bit controversial and that is that the better business bureau uh, pe- people on, on the one hand people absolutely believe bbb ratings and and maybe rightly so i mean they i don't know what their algorithm is for having an a b c d e or f rating um I uh, I also um, have heard from other real estate investors that once the BBB hears that that is what you do, I mean, they'll, they'll like call you to do the sales calls. That's great. But once you tell them what you do, they won't let you join. Like they don't allow real estate investors to join the Better Business Bureau. So I think next time the salesperson calls, you should say, do you understand that I am a real estate investment company and do you, cause I think, I think they're kind of local. I think, I mean, although it's a national company, I think they're franchises. Um, they, that may stop the calls. Now, if they will, if they will let you join and the price is reasonable, I think they, I think it varies from place to place. Uh, go ahead and join. Um, people like to see that companies are BBB rated and, uh, you know if they'll if they'll let you do it, do it, but um here locally, I don't think they let real estate investors even join. so interesting uh question, but uh yeah, um it may not be something that's going to work. <laughs> so uh, sorry if you hear my cell phone ringing, and the funny thing is that the person who's calling me knows what I do from five to six o'clock every Wednesday. Uh, clearly is not listening to the program right now, even though he hosts it sometimes when I am out of town, just not thinking right now. Uh, let's see. Question here from, this is from Danielle. This is from Danielle. Uh, question is, I'm listener of the show when I can catch it. Love it every time. I manage a small homeowners association in Cincinnati, two buildings adjacent to each other. Building A has two units, one owner occupied, one rented. Building B has three units. One owner occupied, two rented. Catch. The three, build, the three units in building B are all owned by the same individual, and she occupies one of them. She wants to sell all three to someone who is interested in renting out all three. This does not sound good to me. I plan to sell my unit in building A down the road, but I don't want to be in a situation where the potential buyer can't secure a loan because of her poor occupancy ratio. What are the rules on this? As, as an association looking out for its members... What is the minimum owner-to-renter standard that I should allow? Uh, as you can tell, I'm not an investor, so please give me the dummy version. <laughs> Something I will understand. <laughs> um, that's a, a interesting uh, situation that you have there, Danielle. A five-unit HOA in which there are apparently only three owners. And I assume that all three of you are on the board, right? Because... Why would you not be? And apparently there is nothing in the HOA agreement that prohibits renting. So you're in a situation right now where better than 50% of the five units are rented. And you are absolutely correct that that is going to affect a potential owner-occupant's ability to possibly get financing. And specifically, the rule that you're thinking of has to do with FHA. Uh, FHA does not want to insure loans in HOAs where the property is more than 30 or 33% tenant occupied. And for you to get down to that level with only five units, you would have to only have one renter occupied property and you have three. That doesn't keep people from getting financing. They just have to get conventional financing and put their 10% down. It just makes it hard for FHA buyers who are your, you know, your first time home buyer types to do that. And there's not a lot you can do about this if the HOA agreement has allowed this already. Now, I think the thing that I would consider is going to this owner and pointing out to her that her best buyer is someone who's going to live there, not somebody who wants to rent it. I mean, landlords never pay as much for a property. If if there is an interested homeowner, the interested homeowner will always pay more than the landlord. Only exception being if the property is not in a condition where it can be occupied. Her her plan of, I want to sell all three units to somebody who wants to rent it is is interesting, but that's not the way to maximize her profit from that. And I think it might be worth pointing out to her that that is the case and might be worth pointing out to her that um, she, she is going to be kind of damaging you other two owners. Now, if there's three of you in the HOA and you'd have to look at what the homeowners association agreement says about this, could, could, could a two thirds vote um, limit the renting of the units? I mean, I don't do you, Surely you don't have to have a 75% vote in a five-unit five HOA. I mean, you could, you could change the rules. That's what they're for. That's what the homeowners association agreements and the boards are for. So potentially you might be able to change the rules and you probably can't change them on her and make her throw her tenants out, but you could change it so that somebody new buying the unit couldn't rent it. Although again, you might be affecting the value in the future. So uh appreciate your email, Danielle. It's Real Life Real Estate Investing Question and Answer Week. If you have a question, send it via our website at realliferealestate.com or quickly give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's Question and Answer Week. And we are... uh getting toward the end of the show here but you still have time to get in your questions either through our website at realliferealestate.com or you can um call in which is going to almost guarantee that you get your question answered cuz you know sometimes there's a delay between putting that in at realliferealestate.com and me actually getting it if you if it's an important question that's just jumped up for you 8777729658 uh got a question here from Lori who is in uh Philadelphia. That's must be must have seen me there last week when I escaped just in time to avoid Snowmageddon on Saturday. Uh she says I know that most seasoned investors don't use traditional banks anymore. My question is if you have good credit and can get a, get a conventional loan, why would an investor not prefer a traditional bank loan to a non-bank loan with higher rates, points, and shorter terms? Um, it depends, Lori, on the goals uh, that that investor has. Now, if you have a an operating, stabilized property that you plan to hold for a long time and you want to leverage, getting a bank loan to buy it or to refinance it is, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I I know that there's people who say, oh, never, ever, ever sign your name to anything, whatever. But um rates are very low right now. They're still sub 5%, even with the fall raising of the Fed rate. They're Thirty years, they're fixed rate. I mean, they're good. They're good loans from the perspective of what does it say on the spreadsheet. The reason that your question was not are they good loans? You clearly know that. The question was why do investors not use them? Why 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 would they not use them? And the answers are several. <laughs> the first one of which is even if the investor is qualified to get the loan, good credit score, job past 25% down, et cetera, et cetera. Those loans do not, are not good for properties that need stabilization. So let's just throw some numbers out there and say you are paying $100,000 for a property that is worth $150,000 after it gets a new kitchen and a new bath and a furnace and paint and carpet. So it's, it's a good deal for you. But even after you get the money to purchase the property, you then need another, you know, 10 15 whatever the number is, $1,000 to do the stabilization. So what you're looking at there in terms of cash investment is that you need 25% down between between the the actual down payment of 20%, the points, the closing costs, etc. You're going to need about $25,000 to close it. And then another $15,000 to fix it. So $40,000 in total cash to get the thing up and running. That is a barrier (laughs) for a lot of people. So they would rather go borrow the entire $115,000 at a higher rate and with bigger points than go through that process and put more money up front and then also have to come up with the money to do the repairs themselves. So that's the primary reason why a qualified investor would not go buy a property with a bank loan. Now, what they often do is they will buy the property with a private loan or hard money loan, where they are paying a higher interest rate and lots of points, but they don't have to put as much cash in it. They get it stabilized, they get it rented, and then they refinance with one of these nice conventional loans. And last time I checked, if you refinanced after a year and uh, uh, had a tenant in the property for a year before you tried to refinance it, you could pull out 75% of the new appraised value, not what you paid for it in the first place. So in other words, you could potentially get all of the lender's money back out plus all of the money that you had put in it, which would not be that much, but get, get some of that money back out as well and still get the low fixed rate. So appreciate the question there, Lori. Uh, question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. I'll put out one last call because we might be able to take some other live questions at 877 877- 7729658 and otherwise we'll just go through these questions that have come in through uh the interwebs. Uh question here from Ron in Tampa, Florida. He says, "I've heard you emphasize over and over again the importance of choosing a great title company for closing wholesale transactions." If you're assigning a contract, I guess it doesn't really matter. If you're doing a double closing, do you always insist on closing with your title company? The reason I ask is I have a buyer who wants to close with his own title company, and he says in it to wire the funds to the title company in advance. I told him he had to do it before closing. Okay, so Ron, um, you got—I think you got some stuff mixed up here. Yes, it is important to have a good title company who understands contract assignments, who, if you live in a state where it's okay to do double closings, understands double closings, who basically knows what you're doing, gets it, and is cool with it. That's, that's what I mean by good title company. I had a student who uh, was doing his first wholesale deal up in Maryland, and the title company very nearly killed it for him. And they told him something that was that was untrue about what the law in Maryland said about contract assignments and he was just i mean he did the whole deal like he was supposed to found it evaluated it right found a buyer did everything he was supposed to do and then the title company said oh well we're not closing this unless there's full disclosure to everybody involved here about who made what money and how it got assigned and all that sort of stuff and he said why and they said well cuz that's the law in Maryland which wasn't even true bad title company right now he found one that could close it thank goodness um your title company is either going to make this easy for you, or they're going to make it difficult for you. Now, you say it's not that important in the case of a, of an assignment. I just told you why it is important in the case of assignment. Because the, the uh, form that my student used to assign the contract did not have a dollar figure on it as to what the cost of the assignment was. And that was what bothered the Title company was, they said, we need to know how much this is so that we can put it on the closing statement. He said, no, you don't need to know how much it is. It was done outside of closing. They said, yes, it, yes we do. It's the law, which wasn't the case. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it it's important whether you're doing assignments or double closings. Now, this particular situation that you're in where your buyer is, quote, hesitant to wire the money to the title company, how does he think, how does he think the title company is going to... Sell him the. Price. Is he planning on walking in with a check? Is that the deal? And why does it matter whether it's your title company or somebody else's? Why doesn't why does it matter whose title company is it is? I mean, title title companies are. It's not that they have never no title company in the history of the world has ever done anything wrong, but they're pretty heavily regulated, and in most states they're run by attorneys. And like really bad things happen to them if they steal people's money. My suspicion would be that your buyer here might not have the money right now, and that's why he doesn't want to wire it in. Does he understand that it's a double closing? Does he understand what a double closing is? Because even if he did wire it in, he would have to give instructions to the title company to say it was okay to use his money to close the deal for you. And finally, let me say, check and make sure that you can do double closings in Florida, because it's not, it's not the case in every state that a traditional true double closing where the buyer brings in the money that buys you the property so that you can send it to, or so that you can sell it to them. It's not, it's not, those aren't legal in every state anymore. So uh, please um, check that out before you go any further. It. But I, I'm, I'm a little suspicious of this of this buyer not wanting to wire money to a title company. That's crazy. Um, right under the wire question here from Paula. She says, uh, thank you from for taking my question. When starting to flip property, I'm in Ohio. What kind of startup cash do you need or what is required by the bank? What is the percentage of flip businesses that fail? Um, well, Paula, here's the problem. I don't know. When you say property flipping, I'm not sure if you mean... Um, buy fix and sell like they do on television or whether you mean wholesaling i'm going to assume you mean flipping like as in flip this house which is you're going to buy a property you're going to renovate it and you're going to sell it and the answer is you need enough startup cash to buy to market for properties and then to buy them and to fix them so however much that is on a first deal um that's how much it is i mean it, you you could you could probably do that for 60,000 you could probably do it for 100,000 you could probably do it for 300,000 depending on the deal now does that have to be your money it does not there's a whole industry of lenders whose entire business model is built on lending people money to buy and fix properties they're called hard money lenders it looks like you're in cincinnati i hope you're coming to the cincinnati REA meeting so you can uh meet some of those people uh what percentage of the business flip businesses that fail? I don't believe the government keeps statistics on that. Um I will tell you that 100% of the flip businesses where the owners never go out and make an offer fail. 100%. In terms of people who actually get get to the point where they've actually acquired a property and are flipping it, um hard qu- hard question to answer. I mean, if you can if you get a good education so you minimize the risk, you get through your first deals successfully. Um no reason that you would go out of business other than you chose to. I don't know. There's not a, there's not a real good answer to that question, Paula. All right. Thank you very much for your question. Thanks to all of the listeners who came in with the questions. Um, next week, uh, the show is being hosted by Mr. Drew. So make sure y'all listen in. Cause that should be <laughs> just a ton of fun for everybody. Um, but in, any case, we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.